Welcome to another episode of History Matters, the podcast about history, teaching history, and why it matters. In this episode, Steve and I continue our conversation about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and particularly about an opinion piece that I wrote called A New Kind of War, How Will We Remember It? which is published by the History News Network. You can see the link in the description of the podcast. Shannon, I read your, uh, your essay that you wrote last week just as the Russian attack on Ukraine began. Uh, called A New Kind of War, How Will We How Will We Remember It? And I was very struck by it. I thought it was very insightful and interesting. I wanna, I wanna read a few of these quotes here from your essay and get you to comment on them further. And then we can take this and, and develop a, a conversation here for the podcast. Uh, the first quote here from the first paragraph, quote, this invasion is not over yet. And let's be clear that Russian forces could still come to dominate this physical front. But within the first day of the invasion, Ukrainians opened up a second front, one that Russian forces never planned for and which completely outmaneuvered President Putin. This second front is not being fought on the physical battlefield, rather, it is being conducted on digital platforms with scripted and unscripted images, videos and speeches that are shaping the way we remember the conflict already as it is being waged. I was, I was very struck by this uh, observation because like you, I was watching the invasion live on television that is, as it was occurring that evening. And uh, I sent an email to my, one of my relatives. We talk politics a lot. And it was just one sentence, but it said, Ukrainians are texting friends and relatives in Russia about this atrocity. Social media may present Putin with problems that Stalin or Khrushchev never dreamed of. You describe this as a new kind of war. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I think... Um, so in this piece, I was trying to do something like an op-ed and it's not published or anything, but, uh, I'm kind of working on it a little bit. And, uh, basically the idea kind of came to me that, that, um, uh, this is a two front war, even though in a traditional military history sense, we would say it's, it's a one front war, but really there's two wars that are going on. There's the, the military aspect. And then there's the, um, the information, uh, digital front that has traditionally been dominated by people like Putin um, and others who can control television. Uh, this has been going on since Vietnam, uh, basically. The, 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 the media images that are being televised um, can be used to communicate uh, knowledge and truth and facts, and that can also be propagandized and weaponized. Um, and 
here what I thought was interesting is that we see something different. This is not a television war. This has got nothing to do with television. It's all about people with phones and connection to the digital network. And what impressed me the most was President Volodymyr Zelensky's, the Ukrainian president's address that he gave to the Russian people. If you're aware of the, the if you remember this, he's in a kind of a kind of a makeshift television studio. And, and he basically says, I know that the Russian people aren't going to hear this on Russian airwaves. It's going to be blocked. But I'm still speaking to these Russian people. And then he tries to make this connection about um, what the war is about and what we're trying to do and why this is a problem. And, and I just thought it was unbelievable that he was able to, and we have no idea of the reception of this, how many R Russians actually read, saw this. But as you say, that would have been pinged around the world by Russian expatriates and Ukrainian expatriates sharing this stuff and, and undoubtedly there must have been uh, hundreds of thousands of people in Russia who heard the words of Zelensky as this war was about to unfold and I don't think that that has ever happened before. I was well, struck by that. This this uh, this second quote uh, goes to what you're talking about here. The, this digital front has been instrumental in the way Ukrainians have seemingly transformed warfare precisely because they so they have so effectively drawn civilians from around the world into the fray, effecting, effectively making all of us participants in the digital front, actively clicking and retweeting combat, even from thousands of miles away from the physical battlefield. Now, all this week in my classes, I have shown that short BBC video of the Ukrainian woman confronting a Russian soldier on the street. I'm not sure which city it is. And she's irate with their presence here, armed in her country. And she makes it quite clear that this is her country. Uh, and then she insists that they put these uh, sunflower seeds in their pockets. So when their dead bodies end up in Ukrainian soil, the, uh, the Ukrainian national flower, the sunflower, will bloom from their corpses. And I thought, my goodness, this woman is incredibly uh, uh, insightful and courageous. The, the, the idea of the sunflower seed in this context is mythological and that it portends the Russians' uh, mortality and then his contribution to a new Ukraine. The only thing he's good for. <laughs> the only thing he's good for is fertilizer for the sunflower seeds. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, and I, have, uh, I don't have any empirical data to support this, but I would suggest that that video is going to inspire a lot of people around this world to contribute to the resistance to the Russian invasion and to encourage dissent from Putin's uh, assault. I think that's the point that I wanted to try to get people to think about is that uh, when you share or retweet or click on something, you're not just a passive. I think a lot of people are just saying, oh, well, I'm just going to reshare this video. It's so great. Hey, look at this. Actually. I feel this front, one thing we don't realize is that we're actually participating in the war, um, even though I don't think we realize that we are. But when we share these kinds of videos or these kinds of um, photographs, there's been incredible photographs that have been uh, taken by New York Times. Uh, there's this one of this teacher in a van with these four other woman, women, and they have these military rifles, and she's crying because she's about to be deployed. And, she was teaching a class maybe a week or two ago, and now she's going to the to to be deployed against the Russian military machine. I mean, all these digital images when we share them, we we become, I think we're becoming participants 
in them. In that, although we're not shooting a bullet, we're sharing an image or a video that is designed and that we, in essence, help to undermine the Russian military in this case. I don't know, I have no idea whether people in Russia are receiving these messages or if they're able to participate in this way and maybe maybe they're getting their images from television or things like that. But I, I, I actually think that probably in Russia, Putin and the Russian military, they've concentrated on controlling the airwaves. And what they don't realize is that it's not the airwaves where the battle's being fought. It's on the Wi-Fi networks and on the on the uh, the, the on on, dig, on the digital network. struck by the, uh, you know, Putin in his uh, run-up to this invasion, had attempted to make an argument uh, repeatedly that Ukraine really doesn't exist. It's not a genuine sovereign state. And that Ukrainians really are just variation on a Russian theme, so to speak. And he kept this up, I, I think, with the, with the notion of diminishing Ukraine to the point where uh, we would accept it passively, the rest of the world would accept it, and perhaps the Ukrainians themselves would accept it passively. But these images, the woman with the sunflower, the, the ladies in the van with the weapons, uh, the Ukrainian officer on Snake Island who tells the Russians to go F themselves, the, uh, the young man who's standing in front of the tank, uh, I forget which city it's in, um, uh, the people in the subways who are speaking directly into the cameras to the rest of the world, mothers with children. All of these images, which are now being disseminated around the world, uh, refute Putin's argument that there is no real entity called Ukraine, and Ukrainians are really just other Russians. The very behavior in the, that's uh, demonstrated by these uh, images demonstrates there is an active resisting Ukraine. Yeah, I was taken by the one picture I saw of in one of the underground subway stations, apparently. And that's another thing we should probably say about these images. It's very hard to verify. The veracity of them sometimes are very um, questionable. They could be staged. They could be staged. I think some of them are staged. The Ghost of Kiev. Yeah. I mean, is that not just Ukrainian propaganda or what? But uh, the image that I was really taken by, I don't think this was staged. Um, but of this newborn baby that was born in the in in a subway station while the bombardment was happening uh, was really impressive. And here you have now this baby. Who knows um, what this baby will grow up into be? Hopefully, but uh, it's a symbol now of of Ukrainian birth yes. of Ukrainian history and yes. the the continuation the resilience. Of that. Yeah. See, these images, obviously, going back to your paper, this essay, this essay you wrote, these images are obviously having an impact in boardrooms and, and uh, 
and, and political circles around the world because people are seeing them jointly and talking about them. Um, you write, I don't think this kind of distorting of the home front or the war front and digital front has ever been accomplished before, and certainly not in real time. And it has affected politicians in Europe and America who are now contemplating expelling Russia from the SWIFT network. Of course, that's the banking network. Uh, corporations from afar afield as airlines to the Olympics have chosen to cease doing business in Russia, in part because of the effectiveness of this digital front in the war. Now, the one thing that I keep hearing daily in the news is the economic impact uh, that this war is having in Russia because of the sanctions. Now, you can see that these images are contributing to that diminishment of the Russian economy because people are making decisions from Australia to San Francisco that we're not going to do business with Russians. I think that's the point of the digital front is that before the invasion took place and before these images were produced, NATO was reluctant, Germany was reluctant uh, in particular to, to act in certain ways collectively. Uh, much of the world, many corporations were reluctant. In this way, you were saying earlier that Putin had perhaps thought that he could maybe convince people, and it's kind of seemed that way um, in, in before the invasion took place that corporations were going to accept it maybe nato or the european union wouldn't like it but they weren't really going to do too much they certainly weren't going to take russia off the swift uh, system and then all these images started happening almost overnight uh i mean it's quite profound i mean the the russian economy uh, on day one had a the ruble went down 30%. Right. I've read stories um, about how Russian people are going to the bank not to get rubles, but to try to get U.S. dollars or some right. sort of foreign currency. The, the government of Russia is apparently talking about forcing Russian oil companies to sell off their foreign currencies in order to stabilize the ruble. I mean, this is um, pretty dramatic. And... We could be wrong about this. I guess we need a way to measure this, but it seems that that kind of activity was contemplated after this digital front was opened by Ukrainians. You know, I'm struck by uh, Putin's calculations here. Um, the images in the large Ukrainian cities in 13 and 14, when Yanukovych was driven from power, Yanukovych was uh, pro-Russian. He was sort of in the pocket of Putin, shall we say. And the Ukrainian people rose up uh, in large numbers in these in the larger cities and carried out um, these demonstrations. And they were met with violence. They were met with police and state violence. I've been watching these videos of this, and no doubt Putin has access to these videos too. It occurs to me that the U Ukrainian people have been politicized by those events that took place, what, less than a decade ago. They've been highly politicized by those events. So it makes me wonder about Putin's calculation that they would passively accept his overrunning of their country when they just demonstrated that they would go to great lengths to run Yanukovych, a Russian puppet, out of the country. Well, yes, that's true. But I think part of the scenario here, at least the way that I might think about that, is that 
that's Ukraine. And in a, in a way, I'm not trying to be insensitive here, but in a way, Ukraine doesn't matter. Really what matters is the rest of the world. NATO is what matters in the sense of who can really do damage. I mean, I think if we really look at it, I know there's lots of people who every morning they're euphoric that Ukraine is sort of defending itself, but it's only been a week. And the Russian military machine can draw this out as long as they long want as they like. to. And, I mean, we remember when we invaded Iraq within, what, a week or two, our president was flying onto an aircraft carrier saying, mission accomplished. Right. And, then the, and then we're there for, what, 15 more years or whatever right. it was. Right. It was so, um, but I think, I think probably Vladimir Putin, because I think he's coming at this from an airwave uh, kind of an idea. I think he thought he could manage and manipulate and control the images in the media on television and that the rest of the world wouldn't really pay attention because only people who watch CNN or Fox or NBC or whatever or read the New York Times or whatever are going to do it. That's what makes this so profound is that this is touching individual people yes. in ways that I don't think has ever been done before. You can have someone who is literally operating a machine, a, 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 a weapon or, or a, a truck or something like that, and they're videoing it and sending it, and it's hitting my phone or your phone yes. or something like that. That's intimate and individual and, I think, way more powerful than what CNN can do. I don't really watch CNN or Fox News. so Yeah, this is creating sort of a worldwide web of people who now feel involved in this conflict, one way or the other, emotionally, if nothing else. I want to ask you about uh, another point you raised in your essay about how such a conflict might be memorialized in the future. Before I do that, I want to ask you one more question about the issue you just raised about the U.S. presence in Iraq. Um, has Putin uh, miscalculated again by not throwing that in the West, in the face of the West, the United States or NATO, that that the United States indeed has carried out these sort of colonial adventures themselves? I think he has. Do you remember uh, Fiona Hill? She was a diplomat. Um, she testified in the in the impeachment trial of, of Donald Trump. That's yeah, where kind of the world came to know her. Yeah, the first, came the, first one, the first one about the phone call to Zelensky. That's right. She's a Ukrainian specialist. She was she was born in Britain, but she's an American citizen. Um, and I I read an interview uh, her and I I thought in that interview she said that. Putin had mentioned this. I, maybe I didn't read it right, but maybe she was saying that if she were Putin, she would point this out on a daily basis. Or I, I, but I thought she said that Putin did this. But yeah, I think clearly there's an issue here for Vladimir Putin to point to the U.S. and say, I'm only doing what you guys did before. Right. But... I mean, look at last I, night. President Biden made the uh, State of the Union address. 
he spent the third the first third of that address uh, talking about Ukraine and, and, and Putin specifically today would be an ideal time for Putin to say or to remind the world that the United States has had its own colonial adventures that turned out uh, you know not so well I don't know why he's not doing it is my point okay well he might be doing it but let's think let's if if we take the argument that there's a digital front here let's think about this for a moment because would that message get out because the only way for him to get that message out because he's not he's not clever and innovative enough to use I mean I know that there's this Russian bot network but that's the thing is we've the whole world has been drawn into this conflict and there's so many people with their phones sharing and things like this that the Russian bot network is as big as it is it's overwhelmed and so even if you got that message out would yeah. anybody really receive it and then even then hear about think about this. this is what I've been thinking about the last couple of days too think about this like what if he does say that where's his evidence because in Iraq and in Afghanistan and I'm not saying that there weren't I'm not trying to whitewash this or anything, but there's no evidence that those two conflicts never had a digital front. No. They, there's not people in Iraq or Afghanistan who are going around with phones and with the, the digital capability that the Ukrainians clearly have to show exactly what the U.S. was doing. And the U.S. certainly wasn't doing that because that's an old, that's a quote-unquote old war. That's a right. television war, right. not a digital war. And um, I wonder, I mean, this is, I think this uh, is counterfactual, but it's worth sort of contemplating, you know, would Iraq, America's involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, would it turn out differently had you had a digital front? I like the distinction. Were... I like the distinction you just made. Iraq was a television war. Mm -hmm. This is not. Mm -hmm. This is a social media war. What do you call it? A digital war? Yeah, you sent me an article that some people are calling it a TikTok war, but I don't like that because it just suggests people are only using TikTok, and right. they're not. They're using all, I mean, social media. I'm calling it a digital front at this point, but I can see social media. It could be a social media war because they're using all kinds, Telegram, Twitter, Facebook, maybe to a lesser extent, but um, all of these uh, digital platforms are, are being used. Now, the issue you raised at the end of your essay, I, I thought was really interesting too. Commemoration. How do you do that? Here you write, quote, after conflicts end, societies traditionally create monuments to the heroic dead, such as, Armis, such as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and they create sacred holidays of remembrance, such as Armistice Day and Memorial Day. But in this new digital front, how will we commemorate the sacrifice of a teacher about to deploy or of parents sending the children to safety with a family member only to return to, only to, return to Kiev and volunteer to fight the Russian army? Um, the terrain of combat has changed. Digital images are just as important as ammunition and digital platforms are just as important as factories and military hardware. How will this transform the way we remember the war dead and commemorate them? We currently have developed no rituals for this kind of remembrance. They will have to be invented. Are there going to be social media sites where commemoration takes place as opposed to physical sites? Or in addition, or in addition to physical sites? 
This is really more of a question that I posed. I don't know that I have good answers to it. No, because I don't, I don't they know. They have that. to be invented. But I guess one thing that I was going at, I mean, yeah, you could maybe go in that direction. But the problem with the digital remembrance is there's there's hard I don't think digital memory really exists like when something is transmitted it might be shared but then it's instantaneously gone like it's not like we're going to go back I mean Facebook thought that they could do this with their timeline function if you and then like like 10 years ago a, a picture that you posted pops up says look at your timeline but you don't go search for that Facebook has to do that for you right. I mean I suppose you could have some sort of social digital archival kind of collection like that but i think that seems kind of cumbersome a little bit i think what i really kind of thinking about is like some sort of monument that speaks to this global phenomenon like it, it's got to be kind of a monument that speaks to the ukrainian experience for ukrainians but also like is it going to commemorate the involvement of this woman with the sunflowers. I mean, we've never commemorated people like this before. We commemorate, usually commemoration is around soldiers. But what makes Ukraine so interesting is you have all these people who we now have a photograph or a video of. They're not soldiers. They're teachers and, and, and people off on the street. Like, like, how are we going to commemorate all of these actors? It's not just the Ukrainian military. I mean, you have all these people who are volunteering, and there's going to have to be some sort of monument that acknowledges this. These are not soldiers fighting, a lot of them, you know. Right. And then the other question I have is, like, how, how is this going to affect America? Like, so is, is the Atlanta City Council going to have a monument to the Ukrainian invasion in in Piedmont, in Piedmont Park or in Olympic Centennial Park or something like yeah, that? Like, yeah. like, how's the world going to remember How do you this? do it and who does it? Yeah. I mean, where is it appropriate to do? Yeah. Because, like I said, this is, this is having a worldwide impact because there's a certain intimacy to uh, picking up your phone and checking out that latest ding that you just heard. Uh, that connection is, is intimate. But is it, uh, is it national? Is it something that a, a state is going to take the trouble to commemorate uh, i don't know it's confusing i mean in our and, last and, podcast we said like we were like well do you really think america would go fight americans would go fight ukraine or would french right. people fight ukraine we said no but actually turns out we were wrong because now you have these people signing up for the foreign legion of yes. to fight in ukraine so so like uh are we going to commemorate it i don't know i think a lot of people around the world are, are getting an opportunity to see firsthand uh, something that's very rare, and that is genuine courage. There are people in Ukraine that are demonstrating courage at a level that we don't see on an everyday basis, and it is inspiring people and making people want to assist in that resistance. And uh, I felt those pains myself. Uh, I wish I was 25 and I could volunteer and go kill Russians right now. I feel so <laughs> angry about it. But here's okay, and here's something else, and this is coming, so we might as well address it. You remember in 39 and 40, after the non-aggression pact with Hitler, uh, Stalin made his move. He gobbled up the Balkan states, uh, Baltic states, and then he uh, made his move into Finland. And the Finns fought back, and the Red Army was stymied. And then Stalin had to make a, um, 
uh, a much bigger effort to overrun that portion of Finland that he wanted. And he managed to do it. It took some time. And it was a bit embarrassing to him, I think. Um, you saw that 40-mile column that's approaching Kiev yesterday? Okay, that's, that column is now surrounding the city. Is this, are these images that we've been seeing, are they about to take, uh, about to take on a whole new tone of utter destruction, bloodshed, and, and uh, a lot of dead people in the streets of uh, Ukrainian cities? This is one thing that I've kind of been struck by. Lots of people seem, I think, turned on by the bravery and the courage and euphoric almost to where it's like, it's like some people just, when you talk to them, it's like they, they think it's inevitable that Russia will be thwarted. And the images that have come across, I've heard some people say, oh, this is horrific and oh, this is terrible, blah, blah, blah. But actually, like, I'm not sure that we've seen the horrific yet. You haven't. And we have not seen streets full of dead bodies. Yeah. And, and, and so I'm like, so this is one part that we have a problem with how we're going to commemorate and remember, because we don't actually know what's going to happen in the future that will we'll be able to commemorate. And, and it and it it could turn ugly. And, you know, we just don't know. If it turns ugly, if there is wholesale destruction, cities are uh, leveled, or if people are killed in the thousands, and corpses are obvious, or are the Ukrainians going to continue to film that and, and, and tweet it and send it out to their neighbors and friends around the world? Are those images going to inspire further resistance, further dissent from Putin's adventure here? Or are people going to be shocked into passivity again? No, I don't think they'll be passive. I think the I think one of the worst mistakes that Putin could make is to commit these atrocities, because I don't know that he realizes that they are going to be filmed. You can't win that. You can't win that. That you can. There's no way you can spin that as propaganda. When people see what's going on here, I think it's a mistake for atrocities. Obviously, for atrocities to happen, but I think it's a mistake to do it in this environment. Again, I don't know that the Russians understand that every minute that a Ukrainian is within camera distance, if you will, of them, they're being videoed. I don't want to draw too much of a. I don't want to make too much of a big deal about this um, because I think there's a lot of implications here that I haven't really thought through. But this, in a way, is a new world. In that, if we think about people like George Floyd or Hamad Arbery, those cases probably we never would have made it to court had, in the case of George Floyd, someone not connected to him took their phone out. And in the case of Hamad Arbery, the 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 two, the father and the son who committed murder, actually got their neighbor to video it for them. I mean, that's just the the height of of arrogance, I think, in a lot of ways, is just to film what you know you're going to do in this regard. And they completely um, underestimated the consequences of their actions. Without those videos, they the, would not have come. those to, two men would have never been tried. That's right. In fact, they wouldn't have been investigated because there right. was an attempt and, the, and the, the DA said, no, we're not going to. Right. So that's a, those are two kind of local or maybe national stories in the United States that maybe kind of connect to this idea of what's happening on in warfare that wherever these Russian soldiers go they're going to be videoed and the videos are not going to be 
kept private, they're going to be broadcast on on the on the the digital networks. Um, so I think it's a mistake. I think that they should be very careful. Uh, from a Russian perspective, I think that they should not. Obviously, they should not commit atrocity, but I think they should not because they're going to be prosecuted in real time. For Biden, they, Biden brought this up last night, war crimes. We, oh. Of course, we saw this in the mid-90s, or late 90s with the Yugoslavian uh, uh, leadership, uh, Milosevic and others. Uh, so that's something that may be sticking in the back of some of the Russian leadership's head. Is that this could get to this could get very personal for them? You know, but the thing with Milosevic and what have you is like all of that, all those court cases in the in the Hague and stuff. Of course, Milosevic, he he killed himself or no? Did he kill himself or did he die? He died so he old died. age, yeah. yeah. Um, um, before he could be prosecuted, but all of that was on evidence that had to be gathered. There weren't a lot of photographs or video. Like, this ought to be gathered. It took years and years and years just to get the trial going because of all this evidence had to be acquired. You've got to find eyewitnesses who can testify. And the, the bodies and the paperwork behind it. And the, the thing that I think is interesting about this war, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily a good thing because justice events that are televised sometimes people make their opinion up before they hear all the evidence but i think this is a case where this if the, god forbid there's war crimes but if there are they're going to be they're going to be judged and prosecuted almost in real time by the global community right okay let me ask you one last question and this is again this is a purely speculative in its own way can you imagine what victory in Ukraine would look like to the Russians. What scenario is out there that Putin would say, well, you brought it up a, a few moments ago about President Bush and his mission accomplished sign on the aircraft carrier. Is there a, is there a moment where you can, where the Russians or the Putin could say, we won? I don't see it because I don't see the Ukrainians lying down or giving up. And as long as they resist, then Russian victory is not possible, right? In my mind, if we buy the argument that there's a digital front here, I'm not sure that the Russians can win, even if they take Ukraine. They'll never win because the digital front is going to prosecute and continually prosecute them moving forward, even if they have all these victories in the physical battlefield. From that regard, it's a little bit scary because that suggests that there's really no scenario for Putin to save face. And that's a bit worrying. However, you might be able to argue that if he could somehow save face in the airwave war, that is not the digital war, but in Russia is really what I'm saying. Is there a way to let him save face in Russia where he can kind of control the messaging and the propaganda a little bit? Is there a way that you could induce him to stop by letting him kind of have a kind of victory there? Which is problematic for democracy because that means Russian people may have to suffer more. But that's one little possibility that I see. You know, that reminds me of 62 in the missile crisis. Kennedy kept telling his advisors that we need to leave uh, some wiggle room for Khrushchev here. 
We can't back him into a corner. We can't humiliate him publicly. Allow him some, allow him some sort of victory at some level that he can present to the Russian people so that his own political life is, uh, you know, is not in jeopardy. Maybe that's, maybe that's analogous to this. If, if Putin can convince the Russian people that he has accomplished what he set out to do, which is to stop the eastward flow of NATO towards the Russian border, or to uh, discourage the Ukrainians from ever even contemplating the, uh, joining NATO, if he can take that back to the Russian people, that might be enough to convince them that this was worthwhile and victorious. Yeah, but I don't think that's a realistic scenario. That would have to be Russian propaganda, yeah. not yeah. the reality of the right. of the scenario. Right. And that is going to be very hard to do. And the other thing that's different is Nikita Khrushchev isn't a war criminal. He's not a madman. I mean, Vladimir Putin... We were talking about this on our last uh, episode. Who is Vladimir Putin? He's not on record. See, now he is on record. Yeah. And... Uh, what did you say last time? He's a killer. He's clearly a killer now. Like, there's no doubt about it. The evidence is out there on the digital front. He's a killer. Yeah. And he's escalating his, uh, his nuclear arsenal. He's es escalating the readiness of it, right? Yeah. So what, what kind of a... How do you talk someone like that? down that's yeah, incredibly know, difficult that's, that's it's interesting what you just said because here the ukrainians through social media have involved the entire world in their uh, in this tragedy that's taking place in their country putin by going to defcon whatever raising the uh, alert level of his nuclear weapons has also involved the world people take notice of that nato certainly takes notice the chinese the japanese uh, other powers around the world will take notice of that. That draws their attention to this thing closer, too. Uh, that was a provocative act. I'm not sure the purpose of it. We're caught in the middle of a, an ongoing drama, obviously. We can't settle it here today. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if we end up doing another podcast on this, <laughs> on this, on this subject. Well, I'll, I'll sort of throw this out there. I read today the Chinese have apparently come out and said, because they've been reluctant to condemn this, Apparently they said, we stand ready to broker a ceasefire. Um, that suggests that the whatever deal that Vladimir Putin and President Xi had signed on the first day of the Olympics, Chinese are getting a little tired of yeah. this, and yeah. they're ready to move in a different direction. I don't know if that'll say anything, but I just find it interesting now that even the people you tried to ally with are starting to say, uh, maybe this is not the right way. Yeah, um, yeah it appears that uh, as every hour ticks by, Russia is increasingly isolated diplomatically and economically from the rest of the world. Well, and that's a large price to pay. Mm -hmm. So there may be, uh, uh, you know, my most fervent hope is that the Russian people themselves would rise up and demand okay. the... Uh, you know, the cessation of these hostilities. Let's face it, this is being done in Russians' name, and the Russians are not uh, isolated as they were for much of the Cold War. They're perfectly aware of what's going on in Ukraine. So this could reach a point where it becomes politically uh, dangerous for Putin himself. Or, if the Russian people aren't going to revolt, the oligarchy might revolt. Yeah. They're already very, very nervous because assets of theirs around the world are going to be seized and they're not going to have the ability to operate their businesses or enjoy the lives of that. So it, it may be a conservative 
yes. revolution, so to speak, inside Russia that could potentially foment? Well, I, uh, I want to compliment you again on this essay. I thought it was very insightful. It was very thought-provoking. I hope it reaches a wider audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> and uh, we'll uh, probably visit this uh, topic again before it ends. Thanks. Thanks for listening to History Matters, the podcast about history, teaching history, and why it matters.